Dr. Amalia Gonyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us in our Johannesburg studio today is South Africa's Minister of Agriculture, Land Reform, and Rural Development, Toko Dediza. Minister Dediza previously served as Minister for Public Works of the Republic of South Africa from 2006 through to 2008. She was Minister of Agriculture and Land Affairs from 1999 until 2006, served as Deputy Minister of Agriculture from 1994 until 1999. She's a member of the National Executive Committee of the African National Congress. Welcome to the show, Minister. Thank you very much. Uh, Good morning to your listeners, too. It's such a pleasure to have you back on and joining us. When we first met, you were House Chair of the National Assembly of Parliament. So I must say congratulations (laughs) on your ministerial appointment. And I also think it's so important to reflect that you were part of the country's very first cabinet in 1994, serving in the portfolio of of agriculture's deputy minister. Yes. And now 25 years later, you're minister of the department. Well, actually, it was after five years that I became full Minister of Agriculture and Land Affairs at the time, from 1999 until 2004, 2004, until 2006. How have you found, the, being within the department 25 years ago, how things have transformed a quarter of a century later? I must say that, um, for me, agriculture is a very interesting space because... It changes every day. You wake up uh, today, there's something else. Um, You've got a drought. You have to deal with it. One part of the country has got the flood. You have got to deal with it, but it's all in the space of agriculture. One day you have got some hail, it destroys everything. Animal diseases, like we are dealing with a foot and mouth uh, outbreak in one of the farms in uh, Limpompo, not long ago, we're dealing with African swine fever in Gauteng, Pumalanga, and uh, Northwest. So it's an exciting uh, space. Yes, there has been changes because, as you know, in 2009, the Department of Agriculture was actually merged with the fisheries as well as uh, forestry. And now, again, it's uh, going back to what it was in 99, even though with added responsibility of rural development, which is land and uh, rural development. So it's it's not a... It's dynamic. It's dynamic. Um, and there are changes because people go, other uh, people come into the space, they add uh, some of their, you know, focus areas that within policy, yes, but sometimes set in emphasis, which also you have to appreciate and see how you manage um, as the newcomer in the space and having been for five years in the legislature um, where you were looking at parliamentarians holding ministers to account now i'm on the other side i'm the member of the executive so it's also about how you manage those relationships with the hindsight of knowledge how the legislative space work but for me interesting thing about this portfolio is that I'm not in the office most of the time. I'm in the field and interact with people, farmers, communities. And, you know, with the nature of our agricultural system in South Africa. So on one hand, we are with 
local women who are operating at a subsistence level, you move to you new entrance into, into commercialization, black farmers who are actually taking new opportunities in terms of the markets and the other value chains in agriculture and you go to the established uh, farmers who have been in the space for longer which therefore means on one hand we have to look at support mechanisms that you need uh, for all these various uh, constituencies which are varying and sometimes are the same issues of uh, technology transfer are issues that would affect or are required by small farmers as they are required by established farmers. Issues of finance, that's the same. Market information and market facilitation and market access would actually span the entire value chain in terms of your constituency. But for me, one of the interesting things is maybe in this term of office, how do I enable rural communities, particularly women, to appreciate the value and the assets that they hold and how they can turn those into, you know, monetary value. You know, there is no household in African communities, and it's not just in South Africa, where women or a household doesn't have a goat or a sheep. It might look a small ruminants, but if you look at the value chain of the goat industry, for instance, Rearing a goat, looking after it, depending on the type of hair, you can get more hair out of it. You can also get meat. Cheese. Cheese. So it's, it becomes you know, a, a sustainable source of, of not just sustenance, but also income. Precisely. But also, I always say, with a goat, you can actually use the skin as well, you know, for your cushions and baby shoes, you know, because it's very soft. But also, you can do other crafting, the bags and something else. So I mm. always say agriculture is actually a facilitator of industry. But most of the time, when people talk about agriculture, they think about food. Um, even though they forget us sometimes, they think food comes from the re- retail. It doesn't <laughs> from come the shop. from farmers. But people hardly realize the interlinkages in the economic value chain, you know, that emanates from agriculture. So when people calculate agriculture's contribution in the GDP, most of the time they look at primary agriculture, what we actually produce out of the land. They don't look at beyond the farm gate. What happens to those goods? For instance, if you talk about sugar, you know, out of the farm gate, from cane in production, you then go to processing, you then have sugar, you can even have ethanol, you know, you can also have biofuels out of sugar, which is your energy source for your automotive industry, you can also use molasses and other things. And that's just, you know, when people look at sugar's contribution, they would look largely at cane and maybe your first Mm. or second refinery. And when you talk of poultry, people think about, yeah, chicken, meat, which is important. But they don't look at it as a export value that you can actually access other markets. If you look now, chicken has become a very important commodity because people with different choices as they become more conscious of their health, they would use 
you know, white meat, which is your breast. And that's where the competition comes in. But there are still those who love their thighs and mm. leg quarters, which is called brown meat. So for me, if I'm engaging with farmers, part of the dialogue is let's look at how we actually sell chicken instead of a full fowl, as we're used to. But start to understand what do other market needs. They may not need your full chicken, but they may want uh, your leg quarters. So you start to look at chicken in a broader you know, scope than you were. So that's the whole industry. You look at cotton, men's shirts, our dresses shirt, in the textile industry. So a relationship with people with you know, their goods, particularly clothing, it's, oh yeah, from a shop or from a factory. But where it begins, it's on mm. the land where you produce cotton. So a lot of your work is about looking at the, the primary sourcing of those commodities in their, their raw state that then enter into different sectors of industry and are almost diversifications or spin-offs of agriculture, talking about apparel, talking about the energy sector. So it's a very important starting point and making people think differently that it's not just about uh, producing the food, but it's yes. about expanding their own value chain. Precisely. And one of the interesting things about the work that uh, the president, President Ramaphosa, had actually, you know, inculcated in this new administration, it's how we must, as ministries, work together so that, you know, those linkages don't happen, you know, like, I've done my bit, so it's your bit. But it's how do we collectively converse and understand the relationship between these sectors that support um, various um, commodities in the market, like what we've been doing with Minister Patel. It's looking at the poultry industry. And what we did, which uh, it's what we announced uh, on the 6th in the beginning of the investment conference when we signed the poultry master plan, we brought in producers, we brought in the importers and exporters of chicken, we brought in your small-scale farmers uh, who are part of the contract uh, farming uh, business with your bigger players. We brought in your independent farmers who are producing on their own in the same room. And then we brought in government departments and government DFIs. Because if you look at this industry, one of the important things which is not in the industry space, but it's a regulatory issue from government. It's the sanitary and phytosanitary, which is the health, you know, status of the food that people eat. So when somebody looks at a vet, veterinary doctor, or an animal husbandry or an animal health uh, technician, they just think, oh, that one is uh, responsible for, you know, cats and dogs and animals. And they look at it more on the inoculation side. Yeah, and you know, they inject things. They don't look at veterinary, animal health scientists, plant health scientists as actually your gateway to export. Because from an international trade point of view, if one can certify the food that comes in, cannot be able to trace back where this comes from. If you end up with a case 
of someone getting sick with salmonella, for instance, you need to be able to trace immediately, was this a chicken from this country or that country? And you can be able to talk to the vets that side so that you can say package so-and-so that came from your country, we've picked up salmonella, and they can be able to go back to source in that farm and deal with the Mm -hmm. disease. And speaking about the international trade dynamic, as much as we're an independent country, we are all globally connected. Precisely. And recently you were elected as chairperson of the African Union Specialized Technical Committee on Agriculture, Rural Development, Water and Environment. And part of the actions of this committee, I understand, are about attaining food and nutrition security, Mm -hmm. reducing poverty, boosting intra-African trade, and enhancing resilience to climate change. Could you tell us a little bit more about that role? Because it seems incredibly important on interlinking. It is. um, And uh, I must say it's an honor that... uh, the Southern African uh, Development Community, SADC, Ministers of Agriculture, Water and uh, Environment, actually recommended South Africa to take the lead, and myself in particular as the chair of the Bureau. The Specialized Technical Committee of Ministries, if you look at the Constitutive Act of the African Union, they are actually the organs of the AU. For some time, uh, we have kind of, let me say organically, operated through sectoral ministries without any integration. So there was a decision that was taken by the heads of state and government in 2009, emphasized again in 2014, that we need to actually um, reconfigurate these uh, organs in the way in which they were envisaged in the Constitutive Act. So one of the things have been pulling ministers of water and pulling uh, the teams that are dealing with environment, pulling together those that are dealing with um, rural development and agriculture fisheries in the main, in a number of countries that are actually one ministries, and then the ones that deal with metallurgically. So in that configuration, it's how do you as the chairperson enable the functioning of these other sectors in undertaking their work, consolidating their positions as African you know, ministers, particularly on the issues of climate change. But the other reality is how do we utilize the expertise and experience that lie across these various sectoral organs to actually support the various um, industries? Agriculture for one. We need to deal with uh, climate um, issues and develop adaptation mechanism. So there has to be a working relationship between environmental ministers and agriculture to actually say, how do we deal with this changing environment? Bring in issues of agricultural research because you you need to develop new seed varieties that can be drought resistant but also how you deal with other new strains of diseases that may come as a result of the shifts uh, in the climate that may bring in new diseases that you have never coped for. For the role of technology in adaptation, in my view, it's one that is going to be critical. There is a technical committee of experts below the ministerial, which would really work to coordinate with the various sectors and the various uh, member countries, but also identifying what are the strengths that are there in the continent. For instance, you have got a lot of centers of excellence on fisheries 
that look at uh, surveillance uh, in the oceans, but also aquaculture, you know, as part of your nutrition, you also have got a lot of expertise in areas of natural resource management, uh, as well as your management of the wildlife. So this expertise, it's how can we as countries collaborate also share? Minister, we've spoken a lot about the agriculture sector. And to be honest, I had no idea on the diversity and how how it impacts on so many different aspects of, of our lives. I'd like to turn more towards aspects of, of, of land. We know that security and ownership of land are really important from a, a social and an economic perspective. And although constitutionally women have got equal rights to men, mm. we know that when it comes to land ownership, given historical patterns, given customary law, particularly in agriculture and rural settings, where quite often women are working the land, but the proportion of female landowners to men is significantly lower. What are your views here and are there any types of interventions on trying to shift ownership into more women's hands? Well, you know, for me, the debate on land is a very critical one. But I always say we need to look at issues of land from the position of ownership, access and use. Because that for me is critical. And I think the the majority of issues will border between these three areas. And all of them are important. And if you look at women's access to land, as you have said, in the majority, it doesn't matter which region of the world you are in. It may not be custom. It may be culture. That women's relationship to land has always been through their male, either male relatives or partners. Um, if you look in a number of communities, girl children are never thought of in terms of inheritance in their family's uh, land because they are thought of to be married to somebody. So it's like your share of land access will be at your husband's place, and which is an immediate disadvantage for women. But also if it happens that you're, you don't have a husband, you end up not getting married, even from the household and the homestead and the village where you stay. Allocation to land for women in order to access it for use, they would ask you to come with your uncle. If you've got no uncle, your brother. If you've got no brother, your father. But it's a male. And that is one of the shifts, in my view, that we have to make. As a deliberate choice, one of the things the African Union uh, Specialized Tals, uh, Technical Committee has said is that we need to make sure that countries increase tenure security for women in terms of land ownership and land use and access. Because we, it has been proven that, you know, when women work the land, they don't only derive food for their families, but they can actually sell it to subsidize the income, but also participate in the local economy. So there is a definite value for me on how our policies as different um, member countries should be deliberate on how we ensure that we 
enable women to access land. In our country, for instance, we've got targets uh, where we say in any uh, uh, land reform program, be it redistribution or restitution, we want to see the percentage you know, going for women directly, even though for restitution it may be difficult because where you have got large scale of land that gets transferred back to communities, it's community owned, which is a mix of women and, and in large measure they use it collectively. Mm. But where we use our proactive uh, acquisition strategy as a state, we want to actually make sure that at least 30%, it could be more, must go to women. But, you know, policy sometimes can be said to be gender neutral. <laughs> but I always say you need to target within that neutrality. So if you were to say 30% of women must access land in this financial year, how do you draw them? And I always look at Kenya in the electoral system. One of the things to improve women participation in the legislature, they actually had to designate certain constituencies that in these constituencies, it would only be women. So even if there's competition, but it will be women, no men will enter that constituency. So it was a way of actually looking at specific mechanism that is going to draw women. And for me, one of the things I was speaking to my officials is with all this nice policy of targeting, but we need to then say, in this budget of this financial year, so many hectares, and this is how we are going to make sure that in your budget of the province, you know, in our district offices, out of the portfolio that we are having, we would like 15% of those to go to women so that women can apply knowing that there is definitely going to be a possibility for them to succeed. We're talking on the theme of, of quotas, and some people disagree with quotas, but when I look at aspects, whether it's from a, a redistribution point of view of, of land or even political structures or looking towards compositions within uh, the, the private sector, our program, Womanity, Women and Unity, is all about gender quality, which is becoming more and more of a, of a global focus and Gender quotas sometimes seem to be controversial, but when I've spoken to some of your colleagues, like the likes of Dr. Nkosasana Glamini-Zuma, as well as others, they argue that it's necessary in order to promote equality and then increase the role and the number of women in decision-making capacity. I actually agree with them, because for me, you shouldn't isolate quotas you know, out of a myriad of other, you know, instruments that you use. It's part of your instruments that you could use at a particular given time. You know, you can say gender equality. And I will, again, come back to South Africa as an example. We decided, you know, during the negotiations that the equality clause was going to be in the Constitution. You would argue that Okay, if citizens know that this is a constitutional obligation, they will act in tandem. But they never did. No. So you have to actually mobilize, advocate, but that on its own can achieve what you want. 
One of the things that helped us move, even in the political structure within the ANC, I always remind people that when ANC came back, you know, was unbanned in the country and they had to now start to mobilize, the first conference in 1991 in Durban, where the ANC held its first conference inside the country after so many years of being in exile, women pushed for 30% representation of women in the leadership structures. We never got it. We were ridiculed about, you know, sometimes when you pass as a woman, they will say 30%, you know, in jest. But it's a power it's phenomenon. Power no one wants phenomenon. to give it up. So one of the things that we had to, you know, continuously ensure that we deal with this issue internally in the ANC, arguing the point why you, you require to ensure that women come into the spaces of leadership, not just to co- as cosmetics, but because of the value that they bring. It was only, if I recall very well, in the 2007 ANC Congress that... So that's 16 f- years later. That's where the 50-50% was finally accepted in the ANC. And we started with local government to make sure that we can actually test. But we also move further to say the zebra strategy so that when even nominations for those who go to hold public office, if the first is a woman, the second is a man, you know, in a zebra stripe, even though we also I mean, acknowledge that maybe you must have a percentage where there could be the direct election, which is like your 25%. But some of those strategies inevitably have been very educational in our society. And as the ANC came with more women in parliament, in the first parliament in 1994, other parties had few women, but I think it acted as a pressure. If you look at South Africa's parliament today, very different than what it was in the past. You don't only just have women, but you also have got young women, you know, who are playing a very critical role in terms of public policy, legislating, oversight. And and for me, you wouldn't have assumed that had we just left that equality clause and not do anything. But you also had to look at what are the institutional mechanisms. We started with the gender machinery. Apart from the gender commission, we actually argued for the status of women to be at the presidency because of the office that the president hold and the authority that it has. We thought at the time it was very critical to ensure that you locate that office there so that it can look at how ministers respond in terms of their, you know, public service appointments, board appointments, but also programmatic interventions in terms, you know, in respect of women. So for me, you can't isolate quotas as though they don't have a space in promoting gender equality. They do, because gradually, you know, they help you to reach that ultimate objective of gender equality. Some major democracies still haven't achieved that equality. Even here, ourselves, though you can say at the political front, we've moved far and were much better, but in the corporates, it's still the same. Who do you see? I mean, we were at the investment conference. The optics didn't look good. You look at the people you, who were pledging. You were there. What, I was what there. did you see? I mean, 
the faces you saw of people who were coming up on stage to pledge, it was male. When we were signing the poultry master plan, we were three women. It was myself, but from the industry there were only two, but the rest were men. And, and I think that tells you the journey that we still have to travel. It's also about changing the consciousness, both of women and men, because I always argue that women have a better position to help us reach a gender neutral and equal society because we nature children as they grow up. It was very interesting how my mother raised us and I don't know why she did that, but she always argued that all of you are equally important. My sister is the firstborn, so she said, you've got your place. One son, you know, apple of my eye, the last born, the one that's always, you know, loved. So all of you have equal space and I will give you equal attention, but you also do the same. My brother can cook, can wash dishes, can clean the house, can look after children. I mean, when I got my first born, a girl, my brother would visit her friends having my daughter on his back. He didn't see it as, you know, demeaning him. Even when he married, when his wife comes back from confinement, even when, you know, paternity leave was not legislated, he actually spent time to look after the kids and help, you know, so that the wife can have time to rest, to nurture the younger one, but the others also get attention. But for me, it is that socialization that we need to talk about. How do we start to build a new citizenry that respect, that value the roles that each one of us play in society? Minister, that distribution of, of gen, what were previously considered as gender-specific roles is, is really important. Now I'd, I'd like to turn more towards a, a personal reflection on you. Mm. We've really, you know, in, in our conversations, one of the questions I ask all my guests who've made tremendous achievements in their various spheres of work is about what they consider to be some of the factors that have contributed towards their success. Wow. Can there be one? There I is never so. one. There's <laughs> never one. Um, I only say, you know, your family, it's your first, you know, point of support, of strength as a pillar in what you you do because if they understand and they appreciate the role that you play you don't have hang-ups of how are they feeling when i'm out you know for work and for me that had been very um interesting because even from when i was very young i grew up with my mom and dad who were both teachers so they were working um I remember that I got into school when I was four, um, I'll say by mistake, because I was following them. And one teacher just finally said from grade one that, OK, let me take this child. And they thought I was just going to play for the whole year. I never played. I became serious. And they now had a problem that I passed. What do they do with me? But I'm just saying that I grew up in a family that was working. But also even when I visited my grandmother in Swaziland, because my mom is Swazi. She 
she was a very entrepreneurial uh, lady. She was a smallholder, so she was always busy, if not out to the deep tanks with the cattle or to the fields. So there was never like an environment that, you know, was not, <laughs> I would say... Nurturing. Nurturing. But within that, my grandmother, my parents always found time to actually give support, listen, appreciate what we're doing, both at school, but also generally in terms of your day, what are you doing? And I think for me that has been the strength, but also the extended family, the community, because for me, our socialization, you know, you are never a child of your own family. You are part of the community. So the encouragement, sometimes the criticisms that, you know, will be brought about, not in a negative way, but in in a way that helps you to improve on what you're doing. Like my mom would sometimes say, what were you saying? You know, maybe if, if she saw me on TV. And I said, this is what I was saying, but the time was not enough. She said, but the limited time you have, say something that somebody can discern and understand. So, okay. So I appreciate one time when I was still a deputy minister, very young. So I came back and shared my frustration with her that, you know, I came into this farmer's meeting and one old man was like, we've been waiting, where is this minister? So when the old lady said, no, that's the minister, he said, hmm. Mandela has been in, pri in prison for a long time. Really? This child is a minister. What does she know about farming? So I was expressing the frustration. So my mom says, hmm, I understand. But remember that not just in our African community, even among the Africana community, there had never been a young person. And a woman. And a woman in government, let alone the portfolio that is predominantly male in terms of ownership, though a majority of people who work the land are women. So excuse the old man, but let me give you a tip. So I said what it is. She says, next time when you go to these meetings, particularly in the rural communities, just wear longish uh, dresses and put a turban on your head and it gives you a lift as if you're a little older. I mean, you could... I laughed at it because it sounded funny, but I tried it and it worked. So I'm saying it is those things. And sometimes you meet a member of the community and they say, hey, you, what are you doing about one, two, three? So you have to give time, stand and say, ma, what is the problem? No, you know, we applied for land and so many years has passed. So you have to explain the processes because that member of the community will share with others for them to appreciate what are the complexities on something that they might have taken for granted and thought is, is easy. I've also had a very dynamic relationship uh, in the party, you know, because part of your political life, you know, it's how you engage uh, with those that you work with. And being able to share knowledge and engage on the debates, but also doing uh, community work has actually helped one to be conscious about the struggles that people face, continue to face, even in the democratic space. You know, sometimes we 
make a mistake to say, because we've attained political leadership, democratization in that sense is that everything is hunky-dory nice. It's not. I mean, people are still grappling with things that are maybe in your eyes, maybe mundane, but making a living, enabling them to just make ends meet. So it's about that sensitivity of how you take those struggles of people into policy making, into legislation, into programmatic interventions that would actually help to solve that condition of those communities. Because if their conditions are solved, if poverty is reduced, then more people can contribute, you know, effectively in economy. But also livelihoods, people will be much more better and they can be able to sustain themselves. You will reduce the public expenditure on your grants because now people can do things on their own. And it has this ripple effect and contribution effect on because we constantly hear that our, our triple challenges is poverty, inequality, and inequality, unemployment, and all of that. And it's uh, it's I think it's been a theme of our conversation. Everything is interlinked. Nothing is, is isolated. Minister, we are unfortunately running out of time. So if I can ask you in closing our conversation today, if you could please share a few words of wisdom or, or inspiration to our young ladies or older women listening to the show today. Well, what I can say is it's important to appreciate that we are who we are because of those who have come before us. And how do you leave the mark um, and have an impact on the things that you do on a daily basis on the lives of others? Thank you very much. That's a very poignant point and uh, practical advice. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having you on our show again, and um, you really welcome and look forward to, to hearing how the portfolio progresses. Thank you very much. I'm sure we'll have another time mid-term to assess how far we've gone. But also, it would be interesting for me to look at how the implementation of the Africa Free Trade Area would actually benefit women. Yes, and in fact, we had a conversation with our Deputy Minister of, of Trade and Industry, and we were talking exactly that point. So we'll <laughs> see how all of these elements come, come together. together. You have been listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, the African Perspective. And we have been talking to South Africa's Minister of Agriculture, Land Reform and Rural Development, Toko Dediza.